0: You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at KOPN.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is is Diana Moxon. I love looking at other people's art collections, whether on their walls, what they wear or what kind of tableware you find in their kitchen cupboards. My mother was a self-proclaimed nosy parker and I clearly inherited that gene. So two events that are coming up this weekend and next are right up my alley. In the second act of today's show, artists Melinda Lotfen, Jeffrey Ferguson and Sonia Nicholson come in to chat about this weekend's Fall Into Art Festival. Amazingly, now in its 10th year and once again taking place at the Parquet, plaza event center. But first we take a peek at a new and ephemeral immersive art installation which opens next Tuesday and lasts for just six days. The experience is the brainchild of Columbia's queen of innovative theatrical experiences, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, founder and executive director of the perpetually immersive greenhouse theatre project and artistic director Duncan Binboitel. Last year the greenhouse theatre troupe delivered a murder mystery dinner to round out their season and keep their fans engaged. And this year, the Between Seasons offering is an experience called simply The Room Project. And here to tell us more about it, but also I suspect to deliver an enticing tease about her new installation experience, is Elizabeth Brant Palmieri and her artistic director, Duncan Ben Welcome back, Elizabeth and Duncan. Before we start chatting about your new project, can we please just talk about... This. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, Diana.
0: Yes. The final scene of Greenhouse Theatre Project's Hedda Gabler production back in September and possibly the most inspired moment in my entire theatre-watching history. Set the scene for us a little bit, Elizabeth. Okay.
1: Um, for those of you who don't know, first of all, this song, any, anyone with a, a toddler or a child
0: under the age of 10 knows
1: this song, Baby Shark. Um, we, in the final scene of Hedda Gabler, it was our um, director's idea to put this song in and play out the last moments of not only Hedda's life but also uh, Hedda's um, time on on the stage. <laughs> it was the end of the piece. I don't want to. I don't know. How do I say? How do I just come
0: out and say what what happened? Well, I, it, I mean, it's a very she dri- shoots herself. It's a very song. dramatic ending. <laughs>
1: Which if you've heard this song enough times like I have, that's kind of what you feel like doing. So,
0: But I mean, it, it was just such a fantastic shock for the audience because nobody sees it coming. I mean, if you don't know the play, you don't know that she's going to take her own life at the end of the play. Right. And then and then it kind of creeps up on you. You know, you've got this fun little song and the daddy is running around the stage being really cheerful. Mm-hmm. And then she just stands on the sofa and takes her life and it's so dramatic. It's Mm -hmm. so inspired. But there must have been some points when you thought this is a bad idea. I think the moment Matt Tricano, the director,
1: the moment he told me, he was very nervous to tell me this idea. He brought me out to his car outside, and he was smoking vigorously, and he told me the idea and was kind of waiting for me to say I hate it, and I didn't say anything, which was (laughs) neither good nor bad, I guess, but I I just said, you know, let's, let's play with it. Let's see what it feels like, you know, and so we did it several times um, that night in rehearsal and i and it it just it it just clicked and once it clicked and it felt right to all of the
0: actors on the stage we all knew that we 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 had something. If I ever see Hedda Gabler again, it will be a disappointment how it ends <laughs> after that. But I'm guessing not everybody loved it as much as I did. Did you get what kind of feedback? Did you get from audiences? Oh,
1: I mean, my husband, for one, really struggled with that show. I think you know he he respected he respected the work and the performances for sure and the piece as a whole. But I think you know it's difficult watching your wife take on these different roles, especially when. And they're as self-destructive as Hedda. But yeah, I, I, Hedda's not ever, everyone's cup of tea. But the thing about her is that, you know, she is as as funny as she is disarming and uh, disturbing.
0: So I mentioned the idea of The Room being an ephemeral project in my introduction, and but that is true of all your productions. They burst into life for a maximum of usually four performances. you all flutter like moths to your flame and then they are gone. So is that sense of ephemerality Part (laughs) of your cunning plan and leave them wanting more elusiveness? Partially.
1: I mean, part of me, you know, wishes we were in a position where we could run a piece, a play, a project for an extended period of time. But oftentimes, because we are site-specific, we are visitors in other people's spaces. And so it just doesn't always work out. With HEDA, we were renting the Missouri Theater, which can be very expensive. And so that was our time limit right there. So it was just maximum maximizing the space you know the time in the space and doing as much as we can you know in little time and that is overall kind of the theme of greenhouse in general is we work fast and furious and oftentimes when I have um, artists guest artists who come in the first thing they usually say is I don't usually work this fast but then some people are also used to coming into a piece fully memorized and then you just get the, the piece on its feet right away and that's not always how we work either for Matt did not want any of us coming in uh, memorized, which was really terrifying to some of the actors because it was such a ginormous piece with a lot of text and to only have three weeks to flesh it out was you know it was, it was a lot but at the same time it's all about the process for us and so a lot of editing takes place in the rehearsal room and so if you come in as an actor thinking that you know you know you've wrapped your brain around uh, an idea it's like think again because the idea is that you get in there and you you take it apart and then you try to put it back together in a way that, that makes sense for all for everyone in the ensemble not just you so it makes it a very much so like ensemble way of working rather than an individual way of working.
0: I like the way that you ask actors to explore the emotions before you really begin to explore the lines to understand what the relationship is and then build the lines onto the emotion rather than learn the lines and then we'll put the emotion in. It seems to make a lot more sense to put the emotion in first. Mm -hmm. So all of that brings us to your latest creation, The Room Project, which you told me was inspired by three things. Mm -hmm. Your love of mysteries, history and antiques, and a production you saw in Europe last year, which we'll come back to a bit later. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that for you going into antique Antique store is like opening a compendium of stories that you kind of swirl through the mists of time. And so, take us back to that first antique store. Like, where did this start, this love of history and antiques? Oh,
1: man. You know, growing up, I spent, this sounds really bizarre, but I spent a lot of time in cemeteries when I was a child. I just loved, mainly because my mom was always, I felt like, you know, planting flowers on graves and stuff like that. And it was memorial was a big deal to her, ritual, stuff like that. So, I grew up playing in cemeteries. And actually, that's where cemeteries are where I get a lot of my character names. And so when we're traveling, whether we're in the country or out of the country, I always make whoever I'm with, you know, pull over so I can check out a cemetery. And uh, the thing the fascination kind of uh, bleeds into antiques. I've always loved antique stores. I love the smell of them. I love not everyone does. But I have like a certain taste of antiques for a a space. I, I like antiques that are well curated like you know if a booth is just a total mess and you have to like ransack it and rummage I'm not always into that I like things kind of displayed in a way that that entices me that draws me in and that I can look at one glass bowl and like totally like you said imagine the story that you know surrounded that bowl who owned it what went on with their life how did that bowl end up here you know <laughs> this lonely bowl who's been passed on to you know however many people so I think that I've always I've always just had a fascination
0: ever since a child you know with the past with the past what went before so the room project this is what i know there's a room into which no more than 10 people can go at once the group is not working together to solve anything it is not a breakout experience but there is a mystery and we have 50 minutes in which to journey into the world of someone's mysterious life or past and i know that you don't want to say a huge amount about it <laughs> well but we need to say a little bit more so
1: duncan <laughs> and i will talk about it at, you know at great length uh we might be talking around
0: <laughs> things but you know so duncan describe the room for us what what do we see when we walk into the room
2: well i don't want to give too much away i know but path. we've got a few minutes <laughs> um, I,
0: <understand.
2: laughs> I think we feel the most comfortable saying, you enter a room and it is an apartment that someone has left abruptly and never returned to. And more so than what you see, we wanted to create an experience that was akin to. Uh, I grew up going to a lot of estate sales. And you, and in doing that, you kind of find these objects of people's lives usually all put out on folding tables in their lawn. And you kind of subconsciously start building this narrative about like how did someone get these this many Dave Barry books, or, like, you see, a, I remember seeing, like, a, a Vietnam-era helmet, or war helmet, next to a, a, an electric guitar, um, and those two, juxtaposition of those two things really, like, stuck out to me, and we just wanted to capture that essence of, like, when you, you find yourself in a space that is really distinctly not yours, so you feel like an other pretty quick, and then as you start investigating and finding things that are, seem mundane but could be deeply, deeply personal, we wanted to just capture that mood more than we wanted to create a, like, riddle to be solved or really intense puzzles to, uh, to kind of unlock things. It's, it's much more about discovering.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you've described it, Elizabeth, as a time capsule. Okay, where we're transported into someone else's world with embedded clues folded into the structure of the space. But we're not really seeking an answer, or are we? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Why are you keeping Oh You're just
1: trying to trick me here. Um, <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think the answers are... Um, they're in, they're in the space, right? And it's kind of like you and I were discussing this last night where everyone, all, all ten people who enter that space might have a different conclusion at the end of it, and that's okay. I think that I, we wanted to create a place where there is no necessarily right or wrong like finality because, I don't know, there's kind of a letdown to that. You know what I mean? There's something... There's you know when you listen to a podcast and it's solved at the end there is a lot of like resolve and relief I think in that but at the same time those podcasts that like end and it's like there's a ellipses afterwards or there's like a, a and they're still out there or are they you know what I mean I, I don't know there's this is this is taking that turn you know what I mean and so Yeah. You know, like Duncan said, it's it's this juxtaposition of these belongings and you get to create that world of who, you know, the world in which this person lived in, you're immersed in. But you get to create, you know, the story of of who this was based on those those things. So
0: it's about each of our own personal journeys. Exactly. Definitely. Not about your journey to it. Exactly. It's about our journey. So, Elizabeth, you and I have both been to an immersive theatrical experience in New York called Sleep No More, which was so fantastic. Ben Brantley in the New York Times wrote, It messes with your head as thoroughly as any artificial stimulant, which it certainly did. And whilst the Room Project is different in that there are no actors, I sense there are certain components of Sleep No More. How are they similar? Yeah, Sleep No More, you know, I saw that however many years
1: ago, six years ago, five years ago, and it continues to haunt me and it continues to infuse my work. In different ways. I only went to it once and I never want to go see it again because I, I don't want to ruin that feeling that I had. You know what I mean? When I went when I left that space. And, and yeah, I think that similar to Sleep No More, they had such an amazingly curated space. Uh, those of you who don't know it, it's like a six or eight story warehouse building in Chelsea, where this elevator kind of takes you up and down and, and you each floor is kind of a different different part into this world so the like one floor is like just a forest that you can just like wander through and it's so you know everything is so well lit everything's so well curated It takes place like in the 40s roughly and so you go into a doctor's office and you open the drawer and it has pamphlets from the 1940s you know not replicas but like real real thing you know and you can sift through and and that so that that kind of performance for me is something that really takes me completely into it and there's no barrier and I think that you know again that's not for everyone but you know unlike this performance or this piece you know we will not have actors getting up in people's faces like in sleep no more you know you're not going to be dragged into another you know corner or into another closet you know and stuff like that (laughs) by someone
0: so I don't want a great show (laughs) I was pushed out of the elevator, leaving everybody that I was with behind. And I was suddenly, oh, you were that person. I was in yeah. a hospital ward. Yeah, yeah. And there were no actors at that point. Yeah. It was just this hospital ward with this really eerie music playing. And yeah. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I, so you start so reading... This was a play, you're saying. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I just started reading all of the patient sheets at the ends of the beds. Yes. Um, and I, that's what you're supposed to do. Like That is what they're trying to do is yes
1: make you feel uncomfortable but in that discomfort you are actually able to like explore outside of like the traditional boundaries you know what i mean that like performance i say quote unquote puts you in you know they lock you in a seat usually and there's a fourth wall and You're distanced from it and you you're protected. And I think that, you know, when we immersive can get overused and I probably feel like I overuse it sometimes in my work. But what I mean when I say that is I don't always mean like, oh, the actors are coming at you and like, you know, it's really visceral and intense and we're grabbing at you. It's not that for me. What it is, is it's really creating something that a person, an audience member can enter and really, um, let go of themselves in a lot of way, because there's a sensory level to the piece, you know, to these different productions that we've done in the past and this current one where, you know, there's uh, where we're working with like your sense of smell and, you know, maybe taste and obviously like vision, but, you know, feel and like all these different things. So what happens when you are observing with like all your senses like in a space and having that kind of um, performance experience versus the traditional, right? So that's that's the difference. And I I think that some people that freaks them out because they're they don't know what's gonna come out of them or what that's gonna like bring them to. And it's also like why some people don't like traveling. You know what I mean? There's a lot of discomfort in traveling and that's why I love traveling. So I guess that's why I make this kind of work. (laughs) Because I love traveling.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Duncan, there are sound components to this room as well, right? So you're not only... all the senses are engaged. So at yep. certain points, you may encounter a soundscape that's folded into the structure of the room somehow.
2: Yes, we have, without giving too much away, <laughs> <laughs> which is, i just pretend every sentence I, I start with that term. Um, there will be, um, I think, like, for the most part, it's a pretty straightforward design. There's not a lot of abstractions to the objects that are in there, but there is kind of engagement for certain objects or certain environments, once you enter into them or engage with them in a certain way, there will be a sound component that will come through and kind of flush out the narrative a little bit that we're really excited to see. Yeah. Um,
1: and, and the audience can control a lot of that. Mm-hmm. The audience controls a lot of you know what happens in there. How so, they move through the room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So depending on how exploratory they choose to be, there's going to be a response to that. The room will respond to them. It'll be
2: interesting because if they engage There's no, like, proper sequence of events. So you could get different parts of that narrative or story at different points, which would then kind of build a whole different narrative or feeling or tone, so. Right,
0: right. Now, you have 10 people at once, no more than 10. People can book a session as a group, or you can go in as a couple and see who else is in there or individual. I feel like I would want to be in there by myself because I don't want to hear other people talking while I'm having this immersive experience where I'm working through this person's life and I'm the little snoop that's in the room trying to work out what happened here. Mm -hmm. But other people, if you're with other people, they may be really chatty. Oh, look over here. See what this is. I guess everyone's going to react to it differently. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, it's kind of like when you go to the antique store, the estate sale, there's always going to be other people there. And that kind of adds to the experience. It kind of galvanizes what you feel if it's, being reinforced by someone else's perspective or if it's a counter perspective it's like
1: you might end up
0: playing tug of war
2: over
1: (laughs) (laughs) something
0: (laughs) let's talk a little bit about Janet Cardiff and George Burroughs Miller as their art installation called Dark Pool is really the direct ancestor for the room project, you said you saw Dark Pool when you were in Germany last year, you sent me a link to their website and really a light bulb went off for me at that point as I've always wanted to do one of their audio walks where you are in a crowded space but you've got headphones on and an iPhone and what you see and what you hear is different than what is actually happening in exactly the same space. So you have this alternate reality. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the body of work created by Cardiff and Miller and, and what it was about Dark Pool that really obsessed you. Oh
1: my gosh, okay, so again I was I was by myself when I entered that space and I think that it was in a large modern art museum in Dusseldorf but the room itself has a, a traditional door on the front and uh, they, they let about 10 of us in at a time I think. So, when you entered the space, the first thing that hit me immediately was the mood. The mood was like set so brilliantly. And it was done through, you know, the lighting and something else that I probably didn't notice until quite a while after I was in there was, like, there was this tonal thing that was playing the whole time. Similar to Sleep More. like, even when you don't think there's music, there is. There's, like, this, um, like, a vibration almost mm-hmm. that, like, really does affect you. And you're, like, <laughs> you're unaware of it until you're, like, what's happening to me? Um but yeah, so there was some really cool sounds and, and, and also, like, sound triggers. So when you were in certain parts of the space, that might trigger, like, a voiceover. And the voiceover, it wasn't necessarily crucial that you, like, heard everything that was being spoken. But it just kind of, like, added to the environment. Most things were hands-off, but a couple components were hands-on. And it was just really lovely, and they let you stay in there as long as you wanted. Because when one person came out, then they'd let, let another person in. And I think I probably stayed in there longer than anyone. You know what I mean? Uh, I was. It was just. It was really. It was really cool. It was something that felt like a person's space, but at the same time, felt like a crazy space too. You know, a space where I was envisioning someone went mad or something happened there. Something happened, and I think the fact that I didn't get to see what happened there was made made the experience so much more engaging for me because then that's where I could tap into my my imagination you know and and really let the story kind of flush out for myself and we you know everyone who's in the space is having their own story play out in their head based on what they're seeing and hearing and stuff like that and so yeah so no one was talking in there it was silent it was kind of like you were at a funeral almost it almost kind of had that like heaviness that weight in the space too so anyway yeah you know it was and 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 our our piece is different you know in a lot of ways from that but at the same time there was, uh, when, I, when I left, you know, when I walked away from that, that stayed with me. And I knew that I wanted to create something,
0: you know, in the same vein, at
1: some point, have my take at it, I guess.
0: In that instance of Dark Pool, did you sense that there was an answer? Or again, was it really about the personal journey? Oh, yeah, no, definitely no answer. Mm-mm. I read a review about that experience. And they said it was probably the most autobiographical work that Cardiff Miller had ever done that. It's oh. really a lot of them yeah. in their life. Well, and you can, it.
1: and you can. I mean, you can feel that they felt so personal, and it almost. I mean, that's the thing is when you're in a space like that, and I, I think that you know Duncan and I are working to create that too. Is that you want to feel like you're invading a space, something very private. The things that have happened in that space still live there. You know, the sensations and the feelings and the emotions are still like weighted in that room. And, yeah, it's just, it's really, it's really intriguing.
0: Do you think if you hadn't been an actor, you might have been a private eye instead? (laughs) No,
1: you know what I actually wanted
0: to do? I wanted to be an art director
1: for film. So I wanted to, like, do, like, location scouting and, like, gather all the the weird stuff that, you know, the props that are needed for, you know what I mean? Like, that's really, like, something that I wanted to do ever since I was a child. But this is, the beauty with Greenhouse is that it's, like, allowing me to, like, explore all these different realms of of, you know, what performance means. So this is another way of doing that.
0: Now, I don't want to say too much about it, but it's on sometime <laughs> next week at a, some kind of time. But I don't want to give too much away. It's on. It's
1: <laughs> on. OK, so we have um, we run Tuesday through next Sunday and it's multiple viewings a night. And then next weekend we have multiple viewings all day and all night. So if you go on our website, it's www.greenhousetp.org. You can see the listing. And if you try to get tickets for a certain day and it's sold out, just try a different one. Those time slots will fill up fairly quickly. It's fun even if you want to like get a group of friends then together and just buy out a day. There's still like a few slots open where like all of the 10 tickets are still available. But yeah, 50 minutes. It's it's just a really really cool thing. And hey, it's the it's something that I would love to do if if i wasn't connected to this i'd be like what this is so incredible <laughs> and is it suitable for children i would say teenagers would be great. This is something I would have loved doing as, as a teenager, but I would say little kids, maybe not, because I have a little kid and sometimes it's nice to not do things like that with them.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much to my first act guests today, Greenhouse Theatre Project's Executive Director, Founder and Actor Elizabeth Brant Palmieri, and her Artistic Director, Duncan Binboitel. The Room Project opens next Tuesday at Breakout Como and continues through Sunday the 24th. There are multiple viewings per night and six viewings per day next Saturday and Sunday. Only 10 people will be admitted for each viewing slot, and tickets are $16 or 12 for students, which you can get at greenhousetp.org. Thank you so much, Elizabeth and Duncan. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be finding out more about next weekend's 10th annual Fall into Art Festival. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Art festivals have a relatively recent history. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, artists needed to find a new way to market their work and outdoor art fairs offered them the chance, not only to get their work out directly to the public by passing galleries and commissions, but also for them to establish a direct relationship with the people who were buying their work. One of the earliest shows began in 1932 in Washington Square Park in New York. Missouri's own Thomas Hart Benton had an apartment went close by and stopped at the festival in the fall of 1945, a visit that inspired his painting, The Artist's Show, Washington Square Park, painted in 1946. Flash forward a few decades and art festivals, both outdoor and indoor, have become a mainstay of arts calendars across the country. Some are huge affairs with hundreds of booths, thousands of booth applications from artists across the country and even internationally and extremely well-heeled art buyers. To quote Kathleen Eaton, a Chicago-based painter and author of the book From Clothes Lines to Canopies, a history of outdoor art fairs in America. Art fairs are, in truth, part of the American art arena, and the artists who participate in them are part of a unique art movement. In Colombia, we are fortunate to have two annual art festivals, the Columbia Art League's Art in the Park, which takes place each June, and Fall into Art, which has been popping up at Parcade Plaza each November for what is now an amazing 10 years. And this year is no exception. This weekend, Fall into Art will once again be converting Parcade Plaza into a giant art gallery, and here to tell us more about the pleasures and pains of running an art festival is artist Melinda Lottham, along with two of the artists who will be at this year's show, ceramic artist Jeffrey Ferguson and Columbia's Queen of Origami Cranes, Sonia Nicholson. Welcome to the show, everybody. Oh, thank you. Good morning. (laughs) So congratulations, first of all, Melinda, as a longtime member of the organizing committee for celebrating the 10th annual festival of Fall into Art. I know from personal experience that running a festival for 10 years is no mean feat. Mm. Thinking back to year one, could you even imagine imagine what year 10 would look like no
4: because <laughs> i didn't know we were going to get through year one <laughs> but here we are we are here and it and uh farrah neewenhausen and kay foley and myself have been the drivers of all of this i want you to know farrah neewenhausen is 82 years old and she has really pushed and pushed and pushed this show. Um, There's times when I just wanted to give up, especially that first year. But uh, here we are,
0: 10 years later. I remember when Farah told me she was going to do this, and she was then, you know, 72, and I said, why would you want to run an art festival, Farah? I mean, really, shouldn't you be retiring? But, you know, here she still is <laughs> 10 years later. <laughs> 10 years later. We were
4: going around and getting food and cupcakes yesterday. So.
0: <laughs> right, running an art festival is one of those things. Sounds like it would be really, really a fun thing to do. And whilst it is in many ways, there is also a surprisingly huge amount of work you have to do to get to the point where a festival suddenly pops into view mm-hmm. of the public. What have you found to be the biggest challenge?
4: Well, just the early years, I think, have been the biggest challenge. Now we're pretty, we are established. Uh, we have more people submitting because it is a juried show. We have more people submitting than we, we have to turn them away. The ones that um, can't because we're are limited in our space. We have 56 artists that uh, come through. I don't know how many we had apply this year, but we had to turn people away. But probably the hardest part was just,
0: just the beginning, and, and now we are established, and people know us. Sonia and Jeffrey, you are both longtime art festival exhibitors. What is it about the art festival arena that keeps you coming back? Because it's a lot of work for an artist, too.
3: It is a lot of work. But the art lovers who come and appreciate and then open their pocketbooks and decide to make purchases make it worthwhile and you, get, you really get a charge as an artist when they come and they give you feedback, say they just love your work and, and make selections and make purchases. And I come away with just this wonderful feeling of um, gratitude for the community. It's, it's bringing people together through art and, you know, from all walks of life. So gratitude for it.
0: Jeffrey, yeah. I mean, you are carrying, you're a ceramic artist, you're carrying really, really heavy <laughs> boxes.
5: <Yeah>. I'm always <laughs> envious of those scarf sellers. They pack up in about two minutes and carry one box out. But, uh.
0: I remember years ago at Art in the Park, we had a, a couple that were selling scarves and they came from St. Louis. And you know, everybody arrives at Art in the Park and they've got these huge trailers and they unload these you know, mountains of canopies and walls and everything and shelves and soak and things in and it, takes them hours. This couple just they had these beautiful scarves. They set up their tents and everything in about 40 minutes and, and they had a little tiny hatchback that they arrived in and when we closed the festival on sunday afternoon they were like gone by four thirty. <laughs> they want any help packing up they just carried the stuff on out they went so yeah there's uh
4: <laughs> the scarf people <laughs> definitely a reason
0: to be jealous of yeah. the scarf yeah. people tanya tell, tell me a little bit more about your background at artistry how did origami cranes become a way of life for you well, origami
3: cranes came to me through my son. A very kind woman came to Russell Boulevard School and taught them the story of Sadako and the Thousand Cranes and how to fold the crane, and he came home really excited to show me. And he, he knew I had Japanese paper left from when I was a an exchange student for a year in Tokyo. So we started folding, and I thought, oh, this is great. We're going to make Christmas presents, and we'll... And then my friends kept telling me, as I gave them to another friend and another friend, you could sell these at Stem. and OK, OK. <laughs> so that was about 14 years ago. They make a nice gift to for folks to exchange peace and goodwill.
0: Tell me about the paper you use, because you use a very specific kind of Japanese paper.
3: Yes. I fell in love with the Japanese Yuzan. It's silk screened paper that's traditional to Japan, and it's Acid-free, and there are multi generations of families making this. So I fell in love with it when I was over there, and had no idea what to do with it. It was so precious. So I was really excited to figure out something to do with it. We brought big sheets that are 30 inches by like 26 inches home from Japan, and we couldn't cut them because they were too precious. We didn't know where we could get more. So, but now we know, and I was I was directed by people to to use really fine paper that you couldn't necessarily get your hands on around here so yeah that's part of the fun is loving my materials do you get to
0: travel back to Japan to source materials
3: I hope so but that's where (laughs) I do get that's where I do get to order big batches of paper and I it's yummy I love it
0: (laughs) how far afield
3: do you think your cranes have flown oh all around the world they make great traveling gifts because they can just fit into a little business envelope if you want and so you can you know as you're traveling and visiting friends you can take them take them around So and people report back you know they're in Sao Paulo they're in Germany they're in Australia so that's really been a pleasure to circle the globe that way
0: right you have in your studio it isn't only you you're you are folding so many cranes that you have people that help out right how many cranes have you folded do you think as a studio
3: oh I would say at least a thousand a year if not more. Um, but yeah, I'm cutting, cutting squares that sometimes they're only two inches square, sometimes they're 19 inches square. I stopped counting. <laughs> I'm just looking at the pretty papers and, <laughs> and then making this international symbol for peace and goodwill. And then I give it to my, my friend who's assisting me and we string them together and then we pack them up and then we send them to museum stores or to Stem
0: or to the art league i've seen them the art league jeffrey when i first met you at the columbia art league you were a wood turner but now you work in ceramics but i did read actually that um that ceramics predates your wood turning years so what made you switch to wood all those years ago and what brought you back to ceramics um
5: a lot of ceramics requires a different level of access to equipment and things so for a number of years i you know i had wood lathes and got very interested in it um and it was only and did art in the park actually uh into art as a wood turner for the first four or five years took one year off and have transitioned to ceramics since and we we just moved to a place where i could set up a studio and have a number of kilns and um, in the last few years uh, the real push has been um, the the great inspiration of uh, beat clark here uh, one of the ceramics you know, professors at mu met him and uh, got really inspired with wood firing and have been making a lot of wood fired pieces built a wood firing kiln at home um, and that has kind of I, I still do wood turning, but it's not something I do very regularly and can't find the time around all the pottery.
0: But you have a lot of wood that you can burn.
5: That's that's the thing, yeah. You, I know where to get all the wood, so that, and that's very helpful. Wood kilns really suck up a lot of material. Um, yeah. Now,
0: I read that you, you'd you gone into wood from ceramics because you realized that as you were cutting the base of the bowls, they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you thought, I should be working in a different medium. So you kind of moved into wood to satisfy your. Uh...
5: Yeah, the second the second part of throwing, usually you throw a piece, leave the bottom thick, and then as it dries, you turn it over and basically turn, just like on a wood lathe, um, the foot of the piece. And I when I was first doing ceramics, before, before I did wood turning, I was I was having more fun trimming the bottoms than actually throwing the tops, um, and realized well you know there's another way to do this where I don't even have to throw the top and and switch to wood and now actually I kind of like trimming the least now I really like the, actually forming the pieces and. Um, so it, it kind of goes back and forth.
0: But there's a lot of equipment to shift from a, a kiln and a, and a wheel to a lathe and all the equipment that you need to go with that and then and then back again. So do you have kind of two fully functional workshops?
5: Um, I have a, a large, like, 1200 square foot shop that used to be kind of split down the middle with wood and ceramics, and over the last couple of years, the lathe gets pushed further and further <laughs> over into the corner, uh, and Little now dustier. It's, it's pretty much pottery all the way across and spreading out into the yard with kilns and wood piles and uh, other things.
0: Now, by day, you are an archaeologist for the MU Research Reactors Archaeometry Lab. Mm -hmm. And in analyzing found artifacts, you presumably have a sense of how and why things have withstood the passing of time. Does that influence your own artwork, the chemistry that you use maybe in glazes or how you form this? I
5: I always try because I wish I could come up with a better story. It seems like (laughs) something that should be this great link. I mean, I spend most of my day studying ceramics and then I go home and make ceramics. But to me, those are kind of different worlds, um, in part because I'm studying the chemistry of the ceramics, so I'm not generally looking at the forms and, and design elements, I'm looking at the internal chemistry and trying to understand movement and, and social interaction. Um, and when I go home, I'm interested in making beautiful functional pieces that people will use. So to me, they're they're disconnected, but I need to come up with a better story to make those <laughs> things sound more, more...
0: Well, in analyzing the chemistry, does it alter how you... The materials that you use, because you can see what works well over time?
5: Yes and no. Most of the, the ceramics I study are very low-fired, so it's a completely different type of technology. They don't necessarily hold water in the same way. So it's it, it influences a little bit, and I can't say it doesn't overlap. There are times where I've actually brought samples in and analyzed them on our equipment when I'm, I'm trying to figure out what a material is or something like that. Um, but it's, it's almost two kind of independent technologies to some extent, this sort of modern, fully-fired ceramics versus sort of older, lower-fired material.
0: Uh. About obsidian and why you have an obsession with it.
5: I love obsidian. Before wood turning and ceramics, I was a pretty avid uh, flint knapper at making stone tools. I used to sell them on eBay and things. Um, obsidian is really fun. I get, to, I get to travel the world. So, obsidian is a volcanic material uh, that fractures ra- sharper than a razor blade. Um, in fact, it's the sharpest edge you can get on any material in the world ever. Um, it's a really useful material. It gets traded all over. So, people in the past figured this out. Trade's been used for millions of years for stone tools. Um, and it Part of what I do is determine the chemistry of the original sources, study the artifacts, and then figure out how to connect the two back together so we can understand movements and trade and exchange. Um, But it allows me to travel the world. I just got back from two weeks ago from spending two weeks in Japan looking for obsidian sources and and working and helping some Japanese archaeologists figure out the chemistry and trace stone tools. Most of my work's in the Southwest, so every year I spend a few weeks in New Mexico or Arizona collecting obsidian and, and analyzing the chemistry.
0: Do you incorporate it into your work at all?
5: You know, I, it's something I actually want to do. What's interesting is you would think obsidian being a glass would melt like modern glass, but it actually has so much water in it that when you heat it up, it puffs up into a pumice. And so I've been trying to figure out, there are some examples of, of obsidian tempered ceramics though in the Southwest. So that's something I want to play with, but it's, it doesn't mix well at the modern <laughs> high temperatures. It, I had a friend who decided that he would try to create obsidian blades by melting obsidian into forms and put it in the kiln and put these nice little balls of obsidian in there, and they all came out the size of basketballs, just these big pumice puff balls um, rather than the nice melted glass. I do melt modern glass, some of my stuff actually has just old glass bottles uh, melted into coasters, but obsidian doesn't work the same chemically mm. as modern glass.
0: A line of work for the future, maybe. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> Melinda, making art is an escape for a lot of people, but there was a time in your life when making art lost its magic, what happened?
4: Uh, that was well. My my father was ill, and then he ultimately passed away. And well, before that, I had I'd put so much effort into. Um, why are you bringing these painful things (laughs) (laughs) up? So so much effort into my website and put so much effort into selling and doing shows. And I just, there was just a point where I I just, and and my dad was sick and I was just sick. And I just was like, I'm just sick of it all. And I just um, said, I'm retiring. I'm retiring from the gourds. I'm done with the gourds. And then I had people who said that they really appreciated my gourds. And it, and... Uh, And I had a good friend, Larry Lote, who got me back into my gourds and got me into the um, Columbia Art League. And Larry was also an original committee member of Fall Into Art. And... He and I just became best buddies there. We had a really a couple years where we just were good buddies, and we did lots of art stuff together. And he got me all excited, and I fell back
0: in love with my gourds. Yeah, so. I can't imagine the art league or, or Columbia really without your gourds. I mean, they're just such a mainstay of the art scene here. Like kind of your cranes, Sonia. I mean, you just you both cornered the market in your particular uh, medium. But. For all of you, really, it's one thing to sit in your studio making art, but putting your art out into the world to be judged is hugely tough. Talk a little bit about the difficulty of finding your own kind of value and voice as an artist and seeing yourself as an artist. What kind of journey was that for you, Melinda?
4: Well, Diana, you know, you were pretty big on on me looking at myself as an artist because when you do gourds, there is this, like, craft and art, you know, and I I just you you've been so encouraging and you were so oh. encouraging during that time and I always just always strive to I'm always striving to top myself so I'm always striving to be better and and to make stuff better I'm always competing against myself and so it's just the, that co- inner competition of always just wanting to be better and better and better so
0: Jeffrey your background is a scientist do you see yourself as both or do you in your head are you a scientist or an artist All or I- both
5: <laughs> Definitely both. For me, the the fun is really trying to figure out what what works. You know, and and in starting out, in fact, this show was really instrumental in helping me figure out what what works in ceramics for me, or, or what doesn't. Um, first few years I did it. I think I had ten different what I would call types. I'd had raku stuff. I had electric fire. I had every different clay's color you could imagine. And over time, um, I, I I it helps you to focus on not only what what you like making, that customers also like purchasing, and that's or and, and having in their homes and using. Um, and so this this festival has been great for kind of helping me focus but I think the scientist side of me is always looking at sort of what works and what doesn't from a from an efficiency standpoint and from a trying to understand you know what what can I make at certain um, you know certain sizes or certain things that people will enjoy using and, and trying to fine-tune that every year.
0: I guess when you have a booth, you get to hear what people like. You see what they pick up. You see what their experience with your work is. Whereas, you know, if you're selling on Etsy or in a gallery, you don't get that direct feedback. So that must be really helpful. I yes. guess
5: it's also, and they they often make comments. You know, people. I've I probably. Almost everything I make has been fine-tuned one way or another by customer input and telling me, or visitors saying, you know, I had one like this, but it had a different kind of handle. And what if you did this? And sometimes I'll try it, sometimes I don't. But um, it's really useful to get that direct feedback at shows like this.
0: Sonia, if if origami cranes hadn't come along, I mean, you had an interior design business or you were working on interiors? I, I worked for
3: interior designers too decorate and make custom finishes in people's homes and sometimes it might it would be a child's room or a piece of furniture or just walls and we'd be working on scaffolding so when I started making the the cranes I thought oh feather your nest with art oh okay so I realized um that I was mainly using my technical abilities as an artist so I was very happy to find the crane as something with meaning with meaning with that could you know span cultures so that was good because you know as an artist you get a little tired of just using your technical ability. so that it was really really good to have something that the people and also something that a lot of people could afford instead of something that was out of the reach of most of my friends So it's been a win-win, and and I always loved museum stores, and so now we get to have our things in museum stores. Yay! Mm -hmm.
0: And your origami cranes aren't only on cards and small mobiles. You've done a couple of really significant installations in recent years. You have a couple at the new Boone Boone Hospital Center south of town. Is that correct?
3: Yes, and that's been really fun because those become installations that people interact with. And they they get to tell me about experiencing. Oh, you're standing under it, and I did take some um, references from Buddhist temples and the experience of touring those. And and yes, it's it becomes architectural, and you, and you get to interact with the art just by standing under it or in front of it which is really fun to come off of a come off of the two dimensional wall and into you know interacting and it completes the circuit for the artist to to interact with a customer and that's what the, f- the festival does too you get to meet people they come in they're surrounded by your work and they get to talk
0: with you. So Melinda you mentioned at the beginning this is a juried art festival explain a little bit about the jury process how do you choose these 56 artists that are here?
4: Well we hire a judge and the judge goes the the artist sends in their slides and the artist or the judge goes through all the artist slides and then uh, grades them I think one to five and those that get the highest score are the ones that get in now we do our best to have a balance of jewelry and wood and ceramic and painting and drawing and and um, mixed media and such fiber um, so that's basically how they get chosen is the we the committee didn't have anything to do with that it all has to do with uh, the judge and and they the high scores on who, who get and that's you know.
0: an outside person that's not involved with the festival. Yeah, it's an outside person. And it's an anonymous
4: person. process. It's an anonymous process, yes. So they just yeah. look
0: through all of the images, award right. points, right? give feedback if necessary. Yes. And then you ch- you choose them. And
4: then we choose, yes. And then we always have a waiting list, and we always use our waiting list. We already use three people off of the waiting list because life happens. Right. So, yeah.
0: Having been involved with the festival for 10 years now, have you seen any changes or trends change over the years?
4: Uh, people just get better and better. I just it, the quality of the artists. It just it just gets better and better. Trends. I there. We had a guy last year for the first time that he was taking old. I'm seeing recycled stuff. I'm taking you know, repurposed stuff, which is funny because that's what Larry Lote did. He did repurposed stuff. But there's a guy from St. Louis who just did some amazing repurposed stuff last year and he i think he'll be back this year but um i don't know if that's a trend but i it's it, well no it is i think the. i think we're seeing more repurposed stuff as, and people
0: really respond to that at yeah, art in the park do. certainly people love their repurposed yeah, yeah. art
4: I guess that, that would be, yeah, that would be a trend, would be the repurposed stuff.
0: There's always a lot of jewelers. That always seems mm-hmm. to be very heavy in jewelers. So do, jewelry gets juried a little bit harder than some of the other categories, maybe? Um, I don't know. I'm not a judge.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think uh, we do our best to do a variety. Uh, we just do our best to do a variety of, of everything, and so... Yeah, And we have music also all weekend. So.
0: Music as well. Uh, one thing that I know that a lot of artists struggle with is how to engage with a person in their booth. You don't want to scare them off by being too aggressive in your sales technique, but you also don't want them to just wander off. Sonia, what advice would you give an artist setting out? How do you do that?
3: Oh, I, I greet them and, and just like a person <laughs> say hi how are you doing or good morning or are you enjoying the show or you know you know they like art that's why they're there and so you're already halfway there um, and just yeah that's the greeting hi how are you <laughs> is very handy in this culture they might tell you or they are just jump into conversation
0: I've just seen a lot of forums online and various art festival websites. People say, "How do you keep people in your booth? How do you keep talk people. to them? How do you close the sale?" I mean, it's it's tough because you're an artist; you're not necessarily a business person, and so you've got to have all of these different skills as an artist. Jeffrey, what's your tip? Um,
5: For me, with ceramics, I think it's easier because a lot of people don't always understand, especially with the wood-fired ceramics, what's involved and what makes it unique and why it's different. So that always gives me a point to engage with someone, um, and at the very least provide some information that they usually find interesting um, it's also important to realize when somebody doesn't necessarily want to talk to you and just sort of let them look that's a that's an important part of it too so it's it's trying to guess what level of engagement people are interested in and what they might want to know and um, and oftentimes it's fun to interact with them whether they buy something or not it's useful to it's interesting to, to talk to people
0: I think it's interesting to see how, how different people have different levels of tactility so there are some people and this is true in the Art League Gallery they wanted to touch everything including the paintings they just had to look with the ends of their fingers everything had to pass through their fingers and other people just would wander around and not really touch anything <laughs> is it mostly tactility at an art festival people want to touch things pick bowls up and
5: I get that with mugs I can tell you, every person that comes through will tell me that this is the mug because it's exactly right. And I try to make them just a little. I don't ever make the same mug twice. So they're all slightly <laughs> different. And every person will go through and swear that that is the one mug that is absolutely perfect for them. And yeah, they have to try every single one of them. So.
0: <laughs> what about pricing? That's another thing that's always difficult. What kind of metrics do you use for pricing, Jeffrey? Um, in
5: terms of how I set my prices for, yeah. for items? Uh, for me, it's it's not so much of what I can what I think I can get for it. It's how how Affordable? Can I make it? I'm interested in. I like having a lot of pottery out there. I'm not interested in going and selling one or two thousand dollar pieces. I'm interested in selling a lot of stuff that people will use. So for me, it's it's a very much a time involved materials, trying to figure out how I can make things to make them affordable and have people you know purchase these and enjoy these items. So um, it's it's maybe different than some more higher end fine arts where it's you know what can I get for this painting? It's more how can I get rid of, you know how can I get this in someone's hand. Um, so that, it's a tough thing to try to figure out.
0: So, Melinda, it kicks off tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. It goes till 5 o'clock tomorrow and then again on Sunday from 11 till 4. Um, You've got music all weekend. You, it's free to attend. Anything else that people need to know? Uh, we always have a children's area. So kids can come and,
4: and color or whatever. They, we always have a children's area. Um yeah, we have music all weekend. My husband will be playing with Al Jolly. Uh, I think he's playing on Saturday and on Sunday. And we've got Lisa Rose's
0: music. Audra Sergal, uh, I believe, Zurgel, is going to be there. Audra Sergal
4: on Joel Anderson. And um, the Lonesome Companions, um, I think, are going to be there. Um we're having we we have a silent auction. Uh, the our artists, some of our artists contribute work, and we raise money for the food bank. Um, we have we will have uh, cupcakes, and uh, we'll have because uh, we are celebrating our tenth. And we will have drawings throughout uh, Saturday and Sunday for for prizes.
0: Okay, cupcakes and prizes. What more could you ask from an art festival? My second act guests today have been gourd artist Melinda Lopvin, ceramic artist Jeffrey Ferguson and origami crane artist Sonia Nicholson. You can find their work and that of another 54, 55 local and regional artists at this weekend's Fall Into Art Festival, which is at Parkade Plaza. The festival runs from 10 till 5 on Saturday, 11 till 4 on Sunday. It's free to attend and there is a ton of free parking. So there is no excuse. Thank you so much, Melinda, Jeffrey, and Sonia. Thank, Thank you, you, Diana. Thank you so much. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves, over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air. I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. Tonight at the Missouri Theatre, Presidio Brass is hosted by the University Concert Series at 7 p.m. Tickets start at $28. On stage at Stephen College's Warehouse Theatre this weekend is Neighborhood 3, Requisition of Doom. Think zombies in a suburban Subdivision, horror, video game, and you're somewhere close to what that's about. Showtime is 7 30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday and tickets are $8. Show Me Opera is performing a program of opera scenes at the Rheinsberger Theater tonight and tomorrow in a show called Sextets and Other Encounters. Showtime is 7 30 and tickets are $7. Columbia's Resident Arts has a fundraising fifth birthday party tonight. Tickets are $35 or 50 for a couple, and as it is at a supporter's private home, you will you'll need to buy tickets in advance which you can get at residentarts.org In Jefferson City Scene 1 Theatre has an evening of poetry prose music skits and plays in a show of original performance art called Tales from the Rough Writers There are performances tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 and tickets are $10 And tonight at the Blue Note it's the best of Show Me Burlesque featuring national talent from across the country The Varieties gets underway at 8.30 and you'll need $10 to gain admittance Saturday the annual fall into Fine Arts and Crafts Festival returns to Parquet Plaza for two days. Saturday hours are 10 till 5 and Sunday hours are 11 till 4. Admission to the festival is free of charge. The Boone History and Culture Centre has one of its regular Meet the Author events at 10.30 on Saturday morning with University of Missouri Associate Professor in the School of Law, Carly Conklin, who'll be discussing her book The Pursuit of Happiness in the Founding Era, an Intellectual History. Tripp's Children's Theatre's production of Disney's Frozen Junior is at Columbia College's Launa Auditorium at 2 and 7 on both Saturday and Sunday. The Missouri Symphony's 2019 Piano Student Showcase featuring 30 of the finest young pianists in central Missouri will be performing on the Grand Piano in the Missouri Theatre is Saturday evening at 7pm. Tickets are $10 but children under 18 do not need a ticket. And Saturday night, Girl Really Theatre has its final performance of the year at Talking Horse Theatre, this time performance a dynamic staged reading of an adaptation of Ibsen's A Doll's House. Tickets are on a first-come, first-served basis and are free, thanks to sponsorship by the University of Missouri's Division of Inclusion, Diversity and Equity, Equity. and showtime is 7.30. Sunday, Fall Into Art continues at Parquet Plaza from 11 till 4. Talking Horse Productions has a meet and greet for their 2020 season at 3 p.m. Sunday afternoon. This is a free event, but you'll need to RSVP in advance, as again, it's at someone's private home, and you can do that at talkinghorseproductions.org. Also at 3pm Sunday afternoon, the chorus, Columbia's LGBTQQA to Z community choir performs Born This Way, a concert of queer anthems, and that's at Unity Center of Columbia. Sunday night, there's a choice of free concerts to attend. The Stevens College Fall Choral Concert, called Songs on Silken Wings, is at the historic Senior Hall Recital at 7.30pm. And at Mizzou's Whitmore Recital Hall, Mizzou New Music Ensemble's concert also starts at 730 30. Meanwhile, at Rose Music Hall, David Wax Museum and the Harmilies are on stage at seven and tickets are fifteen dollars. Monday night Fiddler Dennis Stromat Performs a musical odyssey Of French Midwest Creole tunes At the Daniel Boone Regional Library's Friends Room at 7 And there's no cost To attend Next Tuesday Greenhouse Theatre Project Opens its new Immersive art installation Anti-breakout experience Called The Room Project There are two showings Tuesday, Wednesday And Thursday next week The first at 7.50 And the second at 9.20 It's on the The Room Project Is on at Breakout Como And tickets are $16 And the show continues Through Sunday the 24th At All Street Studios, this month's Hearing Voices, Seeing Visions monthly artist talk features painter Mike Seat and writer Donald Quist discussing their work. The evening starts at 7 and is free to attend. And at the State Historical Society next Tuesday, jazz historian Chuck Haddix is giving a talk about Charlie Parker's life and music in Kansas City. His talk starts at 6.30. Next Thursday, the 21st of November, the University Concert Series presents the MU Choral Union, the University Singers and University Philharmonic, and an evening called Bach and Bonds. They will be on stage at Jesse Hall at 7, and tickets start at $23. At Skylock Bookshop, Missouri's first poet laureate, Walter Bargain, reads from his new book of poems called Until Next Time, and that's at 6pm next Thursday. At William Woods University's Main Stage Theatre, next Thursday is opening night for their production of the Ken Lubbock week comedy twas the night before Christmas tickets are $11 and that show starts at 7.30 and finally in Jefferson City the Little Theatre opens its production of the play Steel Magnolias and that's at the Miller Performing Arts Centre you have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me Diana Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagan we're we'll back next week with more news views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri until then stay arty Columbia